I think you're absolutely right to be sceptical about the, the the levels of progress that are often achieved at, at COPs. Uh, progress is very painfully slow, particularly uh, in the sort of final text that often gets agreed at the end of each summit, which needs every country to sign on to it. So it just takes one country to uh, object to a particular clause or particular bit of language, and then uh, the whole thing has to be watered down and, and the ambition weakened. Welcome to the IA Podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the Head of Public Policy here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to top political and economic thinker. Today's question, is COP27 a waste of time? The UN's annual summit on climate change began this week in Sharm el-Sheikh, coastal city in Egypt, and marks 30 years since the UN Convention on Climate Change, with global leaders from President Joe Biden to France's Emmanuel Macron and the UK's Rishi Sunak in attendance. The conference is targeted at the goal of keeping climate change well below two degrees, strengthening adaption and resilience and climate finance issues. Uh, To discuss COP, its purpose and and, and what we might see out of it, I'm very excited to be joined by Sam Hall, who's the director of the Conservative Environment Network, as well as a former policy advisor to Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for the Environment. Thanks for joining, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Let's just start with the basics, since we hear that that three-letter word say quite a lot. What is a COP? So uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and uh, essentially there have been 27 of them now since um, the original UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed back in the early 1990s. And essentially there are a chance for the 190-odd countries that are signatories to that UN Convention to come together and to uh, talk about what each country is doing collectively on climate change, and I guess to take uh, stock of the progress that's been made over the past year. And crucially, since we signed the Paris agreement uh, back in, uh, uh, I forgot when it was, 2015. we uh, want to take stock of, of how we're doing in terms of getting uh, the, on track to the t- temperature goals that were agreed back in Paris. So um, we, you know, looking at all the different countries, individual national pledges, and do they add up to enough to mean that we're on track to that two degree uh, of warming or indeed 1.5, which was the stretch goal that was agreed back in Paris. So I, I think COP is criticised uh, both from, from sections of the kind of environmental left, as well as from the the, the climate sceptic right, or even maybe not climate sceptic right, but ones who are a little bit more sceptical of uh, these kind of big international elite fairs. You have Greta Thunberg saying it's greenwashing, lying and cheating, although I think she also then said she was disappointed where she wasn't going at that point, but she ultimately did decide to go. Do you think there's a risk that we put too much emphasis on these conferences that, you know, year to year, there isn't actually that much change in the policy, more or less the, a lot of the policy change that's needed is at the domestic level, or it's through innovations that are going to help address climate change. A lot of what's discussed at COP is pre, pre-arranged. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of international conferences, nothing inherently wrong with the international conference, but just seems like this particular one, maybe maybe more so because it was in the UK last year, just gets like a disproportionate level of, um interest and intrigue and focus? Well, I I think they're necessary um, to have each year because, you know, obviously each individual country can't on its own solve climate change. It's something that we're going to have to uh, all solve together. Um, One country getting to net zero won't be enough to stop the disastrous levels of climate change uh, that that the scientists warn us will will come if we don't all reach our mission. So I think that the need for international cooperation is therefore important to tackling climate change. And I think we need a a forum where countries can can do that. I think you're absolutely right to be sceptical 
about the, the, the levels of progress that are often achieved at, at COPs. Uh, progress is very painfully slow, particularly uh, in the sort of final text that often gets agreed at the end of each summit, which needs every country to sign on to it. So it just takes one country to uh, object to a particular clause or particular bit of language, and then uh, the whole thing has to be watered down and, and the ambition weakened. I do think, however, it is an opportunity for countries to work on side deals or coalitions of the willing, uh, where groups of countries can come together to agree certain things. So to give an example, last year at COP26, uh, a whole range of countries uh, with large areas of forest came together to agree a deal to end deforestation and a package of finance as well to support those countries with more sustainable forest management and, and agricultural practices so that they there weren't those economic incentives that there are at the moment. For, for chopping down pristine forests um, that didn't get complete agreement across all the the members of the um of the of the cop process but it did get that coalition the willing and crucially uh, you know the, the vast majority of the world's forest um, players were was were signed up to that deal so i think there is there is an opportunity to to forge these slightly smaller coalitions and it's ultimately i think a really good forcing mechanism it's that countries uh you know have to bring something to cop they have to think about their their climate commitments in advance of cop and it's a good opportunity i think to uh, get the, the various civil services and, and, and bureaucratic structures to, to think about what what was going to cop each year. Yeah, so kind of going on to that point in terms of where the commitments are at in, in relation to Paris. So as you've said, there was this intriguing wording in, in the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, the, the goal is 2.5 and then the stretch goal, you know, ideally less than 2.5, so two degrees warming in 1.5. Now, The Economist, I think, an in, in, intriguing uh um, cover story uh, this week or, or leading story this week on climate change suggested that basically the 1.5 degrees goal is dead, that based upon the current commitments from countries, you're probably going to see something like 10% emissions increases by 2030. What you actually need is something like a 45% decrease. Um, and therefore, you know, the COP process isn't necessarily working to deliver the the stated intended goals and you might need to you know think more radically or differently about if, if you want to stop climate change i guess that's kind of almost the argument you could you could see that in, in two ways you could see that as an argument from the just up oil lot that you know we need to uh take quite extreme actions to decarbonize the economy or you could see it as just a dismissal of the whole the whole cop process what, what do you make of where we're at in terms of um the carbon reduction commitments I think the 1.5 degree goal is is going to be incredibly challenging to to hit. Um, I think, um, as as you said in, in in your question, the level of pledges that we've got at the moment is not enough. We're probably on track for something like two and a half degrees of warming, uh, assuming all those pledges uh, are met. And whilst 90 percent of global GDP now is covered by net zero goals, which I think will ultimately mean that you know in terms of long term levels of emissions, if, if if all those targets are met, we won't go too far above that two five degrees because climate change is the product of cumulative carbon emissions going into the atmosphere uh, over many years if we have another few years of these very high historically high levels of carbon emissions going into the atmosphere that near term uh tipping over we're currently about 1.1 1.2 degrees of warming uh to the 1.5 degrees we're going to hit that very soon so I think it is, uh, you know, it, it is looking very challenging, but I, I don't think it's a council uh, for despair. I think every 0.1 degrees of warming that we can avoid means much less economic and social damage caused by climate change. So it is still worth trying as hard as we can to get as close to that 1.5 degrees as possible. And, you know, there are some countries very low, low lying below sea level um, for whom that, you know, that that 1.5 degree target is, is existential. Um, and I think that's why it is, you know, 
important at the COP for countries to, you know, continue to, to fight for that target as hard as possible. Yeah, it seems kind of obvious to me that you can get too obsessed about 1.5 degrees and you're getting it down from 2 degrees to 1.8 or 1.7 degrees, at least according to um, the modeling, which suggests, you know, that that lesser impact on, on the margin um, in terms of rising sea levels, exposed vapor to extreme heat um, and, and all the other the issues. Now, the, the underlying problem here, of course, seems to be the fact that, and there's been some interesting commentary this week about the fact that the UK has reduced carbon emissions probably more than any other country, at least domestic carbon emissions in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, the, the West has very much maxed out uh, its carbon emissions and is, is per capita declining, if not in absolute terms, um, certainly on the way down. Uh, where we're seeing the substantial increase in emissions, of course, is in the developing world, particularly from, from China and India, who don't seem to uh, take the climate change issue anywhere near as seriously. Um, is there is there a way around this? This seems to be the, the continuous issue here, which is, you know, some other statistic which was coming out was in the last eight years, China was admitted more than the last 220 years in the UK. Um, and therefore, although, the, you know, it is great and the UK should do things about climate change, it's, it's not the be all and end all if you can't effectively persuade China somehow to not admit as much as they develop. Or maybe you say, well, they do need to admit, you know, it's it's there, it's righteous and good for them to develop and, and they they should be able to admit in the way we did in the past. Well, no, I think I think China, India and, and, and lots of these developing countries are not doing enough in terms of emissions reduction. I mean, they would argue that, as you said, that they should be allowed to develop and to pollute whilst they develop. And, and if they and if the developed countries want to see them um, cut their emissions faster, then they should provide more finance to help them with the, the cost of the transition and to build the renewable energy and the other infrastructure that we need. But I think the reality is that if we do uh, not see faster near term emissions cuts from some of these developing countries some of these critical tipping points in terms of the climate will be will be reached we will cross the 1.5 degree threshold and so on so I, I do think they need to go further but I don't think any of this means that the UK should give up on on, on its climate leadership um, I think firstly as you said we've got this incredibly impressive uh, emissions reduction record fastest in the G20 and it's happened at the same time as, as growing our economy and we've been one of the fastest growing economies uh, in, in the same time period as we've been cutting our emissions in, in, the, in the G7 so I think that that positive story we can tell about how you can grow your economy, how you can develop economically and at the same time cut your emissions is one that the UK uh, can, can promote. And the other area I think that we can uh, have an outsized influence is in terms of technology development and trade. If we can develop these clean technologies, bring them down in costs, innovate, and then export those technologies around the world through our uh, network of free trade agreements and opening up of new markets, that I think is a very powerful way in which we can use markets and capitalism to, uh, to drive down emissions overseas beyond our borders and, and not just have impact in terms of our territorial emissions here in the UK. So this is this has been, I think, one of the major issues discussed at, at COP is that this question of climate operations or or um, also known as loss and damage. There's some claim that about one trillion dollars by 2050. There was a previous commitment for 100 billion in annual climate finance by 2020 to 2025. Doesn't really eventuate. Where do you think those debates are at? Is is there a, a kind of penance that the West should pay to the developing world, or is that the, the wrong way potentially to think about it as as a as a punishment? My, my colleague Emily Carver, I think, argued um, in Con Home today that in fact we should thank the West for developing. You shouldn't punish the West for um, creating economic prosperity. That's overall been a good thing, and that we shouldn't think in those kind of terms about reparations. 
I mean, I think I, I generally struggle with sort of the notion of historic responsibility and that this sort of current generation of taxpayers in the UK should be expected to bear costs for things that their ancestors um, did. And, and, and ultimately, that things that their ancestors weren't really conscious of as well in terms of the, the negative impact. So I, I don't agree with the sort of principle of historic guilt. And, you know, I think financially, it's such a potentially unlimited liability that the UK could be signing up to if it accepts the, the principle of loss and damage. I do, however, think that there is a need for developed countries to um, put in finance to enable this transition. Some of it, I think, can be done on a commercial basis. You know, lots of renewable energy is now cost competitive and there may be a role for government in guaranteeing some of the private sector lending and, and investment into developing countries to get this infrastructure built. But fundamentally, that can be done on a commercial basis. I think funding countries to adapt to warmer climates, uh, to less water, to food insecurity, that will help the UK ultimately. I think in terms of dealing with some of the drivers of migration and conflict and, and instability around the world. And I think, you know, as the UK has done historically, it is right that we step in if there's been a disaster or, uh, you know, there's, there's been some kind of natural disaster which has made people homeless and caused lives to be lost. I think there's always, uh, you know, that moral argument for, for wealthier countries to, to choose to, to donate money to those countries to help them clean them up. But I, I, I think all of those things can be done. But I think the accepting the principle of climate reparations would be would be very damaging and I, I can't see it commanding you know popular support in the UK yeah I think kind of brings me where to next in terms of responding to climate change you know I'm I consider myself a market environmentalist and and want to try to see the government would, would love to see the government trying to pick less winners you know not supporting hydrogen or carbon capture but having a carbon tax in place that would incentivize um investments and and in innovation um I don't think that's necessarily where the global debate is at there doesn't seem i suppose there's movements by although now criticizes greenwashing by um major institutional investors to to, to try to move around where they put their money etc cetera, etc cetera. is is there a good story about the market responding to climate change over responding some might even say uh in in some respects uh or what is the kind of role for the state in your view in order to solve these issues <laughs> Yeah, big question. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think you're right that there has not been, you know, the most free market approach to this, I think, probably would be to levy a carbon tax um, across the economy, apply it equally to all sectors and let the market find the, the cheapest way of, of, uh, of, of deploying technologies and, and reaching uh, reaching our climate goals. I think for political reasons, that's been very challenging. It's a very visible extra cost that people feel when they uh, fill up their car or heat their homes. And so I think politicians have always been reluctant to to go down that route um even if it might be the the cheapest and most market friendly way ultimately and um, to tackle it but i think there are other ways in which we you know we can look at uh, more market friendly approaches to to climate action which i think are more achievable so one example i think would be dealing with some of the planning and regulatory issues that are preventing uh renewable energy from being deployed at scale um you know there are restrictions on onshore wind in england uh, even putting rooftop solar on on some residential properties can be challenging to get the planning system getting electric charge point electric vehicle charge points installed you have from councillors that they have issues navigating the planning system for that so i think there are ways in which we can expedite planning to get some of these clean technologies deployed 
Another example I think we touched on earlier is around trade and basically trying to use trade as a way to disseminate um, clean technologies, the most cost effective and effective clean technologies around the world at lowest cost, reducing the overall cost of reaching net zero. I think that's an agenda that a lot of people um, can can support as well. Um, so I, I think there are there are there are there are solutions. And I think, you know, the market has um you know, particularly once these technologies reach these tipping points where they're no longer um, more expensive than their fossil fuel alternatives, as they are in the case of wind and solar and, and getting there with battery electric vehicles, then I think you can see, you know, market market forces really driving the scale deployment. But I do think that there is a role in the absence of a carbon tax, the government to pump prime them some of these markets and, and help them bring down uh, the cost. I think the lesson from solar and wind is that it takes that scale, the economies of scale, um, for, for and the mass manufacturing of those 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 renewable energies for the cost to start coming down. So we've got to achieve that tipping point. And because of the timeframes that we're on in terms of stopping dangerous levels of, of climate change, we do need to um, accelerate it a bit more uh, compared to what the market, I think, would do naturally. There's, of course, a bit of a counter-narrative here uh, from those who, who don't see climate change as, as much of a serious issue, but do see uh, even so a massive cost to British consumers of the restructuring of our energy grid to um, get rid of coal and then um, pump up solar and wind and then you're making yourself more dependent on on gas and and then not domestically having gas at all uh, it, production and, and what would be necessary through fracking for example um, do, how do you respond to that kind of that kind of narrative that the the kind of populist backlash against the these policies uh, will be kind of inevitable and, and vast and vicious and, and you know, we're all going to be made a lot poorer and it's not really worth doing any of what you're talking about. Well, I think in the case of the, the power sector, there's a report out um, today by, by Public First looking at what the kind of lowest cost electricity system would be in 2035, independent of, of any sort of uh, constraints around carbon and climate change. And they found that a grid do dominated by, by wind power would be the cheapest uh, in, in the absence of any concern about climate. So I do think there are some, some areas like in the power sector where actually going harder and faster on, on the clean technologies will, will deliver a, a cheaper overall outcome for for the energy sector um so yeah i i i i think there is definitely um you know there are areas where we do need to put in more investment uh, and, and more funding in the short term to bring those costs down but i think you know looking um overall at the net zero transition i confident that that will be cheaper uh, than than dealing with the impacts of climate change uh, and i think you know we've seen the the, the technologies falling in cost all the time offshore winds um, you know, is, is significantly cheaper than what we was assumed it would be when the net zero target was set, and that has made the whole cost of net zero cheaper. Similarly, the cost of gas uh, is now way cheaper, well, sorry, way more expensive, sorry, than, than when we were setting our climate targets, again, making the economics of this, this transition uh, even better. And I think to your point about, you know, renewables leading to, you know, more reliance on gas, I disagree. I think the more renewables we have, uh, the less we're having to burn our uh, turn on our gas turbines and have them generating 100% of the time. They use they use more as backup uh, instead of as base load, and so overall across the year you're burning less gas than you otherwise would. So I think you are you are reducing your your gas dependency by by building out renewables. Um, of course, if you have uh, it would help if you have nuclear holding some of the baseline as well as 
more storage capacity, which I think is where the issue remains. Um, and hopefully the, the technologies improve on that front. Um, I'm kind of last thought is, is what you make of some of the kind of more, uh, I guess, radical solutions that, uh, that we see talked about, things like geoengineering as one example, the idea of effectively spurting up sulfite into the into the atmosphere to reduce the the sun rays and therefore reduce the, the temperature potentially by a few degrees uh, if can be mastered uh, much cheaper solution to climate change than trying to uh, change our entire energy um, grid obviously there's been a lot of skepticism amongst environmentalists about the kind of god-playing nature when it comes to something as radical as geoengineering but i'm wondering if there is increasingly more of a, a place for it particularly if we are struggling um you, under the current targets to to bring down climate change yeah i mean geoengineering feels quite risky um and i also think you get into some very complex questions as well around um you know who is doing that which countries would you trust to um to do that process and what's the kind of international uh framework for agreeing how that will be done i think it, you very quickly get into some quite difficult and and complex um territory in terms of international relations um uh, you know uh, quite well, well, aside from all the, the technological challenges I, I do think that you know there are these cheap and readily available solutions which we're still not maximizing we're still not deploying uh, as fast as we could do i think we can make a lot of progress with that um you know i think there may well be sectors like aviation like farming where there are going to be some residual emissions and i think that's where technologies like direct air capture um which are very energy intensive currently very expensive but i think they have potential to help us remove uh, some of the co2 from those residual uh, sources of emissions over time and so i, I think i'd be looking more to to those types of, of solutions as well as of course making sure we restore our our natural habitats which are very good carbon sequesters our forests our mangroves our, our wetlands making sure they're in a functioning uh, ecological health so that they can be drawing down as much carbon as well um these solutions i think feel feel more uh yeah more likely to succeed and i think have fewer few of those those challenges around geopolitics well what what might be the slight doomster and gloomster on uh geoengineering but definitely um optimistic booster about other technologies and and ability to address climate change thanks so much for joining the IAA podcast, Sam. Uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your podcast provider as well as on our YouTube channel. Uh, and if you're interested in supporting the IAA, please do become an IAA patron where you can get exclusive content and first. So thank you very much.